We're going through this uh, series called Kindness is Our Superpower. And I hope that you've taken the kindness challenge and you've picked that person in your life. Uh, you're kind of directing kindness toward them where you're, you're saying positive things to them and you're not being critical to them. You're thinking of things that would bless their life and you're doing them for them and you're being present to them in a powerful way in the name of Jesus. We're still getting a lot of emails. I'm getting a lot of emails about kind of how it's going for you. And I would love to get more. So if you have a, a story about how your month has gone when you've been intentionally kind to other people, uh, I would love to hear it. And I've, I've gotten emails that, that sounded successful, that, that a person tried to be kind and they got a really great result. They could tell they changed somebody's life. And I've had emails that say, ah, I'm trying this, but I don't think it's working. Uh, but that's not failure. That's just someone not realizing what's happening. Um, I want to remind you, it took me like two and a half weeks of experiencing a really great marriage when my wife was being kind to me before I realized even something was d different. Some of us have thicker heads than others. Um, but it's, it's still the beginning of the new year, and I, and I hope that your resolutions have fallen apart uh, just like mine. My gym is much less crowded than it was uh, a week and a half ago, mostly because I'm not there anymore. Um, but there's this particular resolution that uh, I've, I've seen in the last couple of years, and it goes something like this. This year, I am going to rid myself of all the toxic and negative things in my life, which is why I'm no longer an Astros fan. <laughs> Too soon? I'm sorry. Asterix. <laughs> Again, that's not, that's no, there's no joy in that. Um, I'm going to rid myself of all the toxic and negative things in my life. And, and in the healthiest sense of the word, this is what we call self-care. And as you minister to your context, as you minister to your job and the people around you, to your household, you need to remember self-care. This, this matters because you can push yourself too hard. You can overextend yourself. You can take on too much stress. And then you're no longer able to be present to the people around you. My friend Ken always used to say, if you're in a place of too much busyness, God didn't bring you there. Now, there's another side to this, which is you've been making bad choices or putting yourself in a posture where it's difficult for you to hear the love of God. And if that's the case, you need to be reminded who you are. But I want us to think carefully about this idea of ridding ourselves of toxic or negative things, particularly if I'm talking about people. I want you to think carefully about how you eliminate the negative people in your life. I'm not talking about bad habits or, or media or unhelpful thoughts, those things that are toxic. I'm talking about people. If you're anything like me, it's it's. I like persons, it's people I don't like. I don't like most people either, but, but we have to be careful with that. Because if we start eliminating the prickly people in our lives, or the people that don't, aren't always positive, the people that aren't always giving us our best, we might find ourselves lonely we might find that we are the prickly people who are feeding like a parasite on the positive people. Or even worse, we might find ourselves with no one whom we can love 
for love's sake. And I think this is true for us as a body as much as it's true for us as individuals. America right now is littered with church buildings that have closed their doors. And the reason that they have closed their doors is because they pulled up the drawbridge at some point long ago, they banged, they nailed shut the shutters, and they stopped interacting with the people around them who might be toxic or might be tough to love or might be a little bit prickly. And all the churches that used to be in those church buildings are gone. Jesus says, what good is it if you only bless those that bless you? What good is it if you're only kind to those who are kind to you? I've received several stories about the way kindness has changed interactions. There's a woman here at Highland that emailed me that she was in the CVS checkout counter and, and she saw the clerk that was working there and it was clearly that that clerk was having a terrible day. And this woman looked her in the eye and saw that one of her eyes had a lot of makeup around it. So she asked, how's it going? And she said, not so good. I left my boyfriend last night. And in that moment, she said, I, I could have been kind. I wasn't sure what to do, but I wanted to be kind to this woman. And so she said, I hope this is the worst day you ever had, but I hope it gets better very, very soon. And then she gave her a, a little bit of money because that's how she could help. Uh, another person emailed me about she had uh, been stopped at a, a left red turn light and the, the light next to her, the green straight light, uh, turned green. And, but a car that was going up behind her didn't realize that she couldn't go yet and rear-ended right into her. And it was particularly hard because she had both of her kids in car seats in the back. And so she gets out because her kids are a little bit flustered and scared and crying. And the person gets out that rear-ended her and said, look, all of the damage is on my car. There's really nothing wrong with your car. Um, I'm really sorry. Can we just let this go? But my, my friend wasn't so certain that that's what you do in an accident because insurance might get involved. And, and she kind of remembered you're always supposed to call the police in these situations. And so she said, look, let's just um, pull over to this parking lot and, and let's figure this out. And she did end up calling the police because she wanted to do the right thing. And the officer shows up and, and he, he's talking to her and he talks to the other person. And then, then he says, uh, look, this is clearly her fault, so I'm going to give her the ticket. But the car that had run into her wasn't in very good shape. And the girl that had hit her could not have been more than 18 years old. And so she asked the officer, hey, can you just skip a ticket? I mean, we don't have to do it this time, right? And the police officer says, no, this is, what, this is what you have to do in these situations. You have to give a ticket. And she looked at the officer and she said, haven't you ever been poor before? And the girl came up to her and said, the officer said that you didn't want him to give me a ticket. Thank you. And these, these stories aren't simple. These stories are, are complicated. There's no easy answers to these problems. But I hope that you can see how, how kindness and the intention of being kind to someone else can kind of cut through some of that pain. My friend Deed was telling me that she had this guy at her work and um, he, they, they weren't like, friends and they weren't like enemies they just didn't get along 
They didn't, just didn't like each other. They didn't vibe together. And she said, so that's the guy I chose. I'm going to try to be kind to that guy, but I don't know what to do. And I said, well, what do you do with him normally? What's the problem? He says, well, we just kind of ignore each other most of the time. And so I said, well, why don't you just try to talk to him? And she said, okay. And so later on she said, well, I tried to talk to him. I said, tell me how it goes. And she said, well, I said, hi. And I said, what did, what did he say? And she said, he said, hi. And that was the end of it. I was like, good. This is progress. Next time, ask him how he's doing. And so she said, came back to me and I said, hi, what did he say? She said, hi, and how are you doing? Uh, fine. Why are you talking to me? And that was kind of the end of it, right? That was not failure. That was progress. I asked her, how do you feel about it? And she said, I feel like I wasted my time. And so I asked her, what did it cost you? She said, nothing. Kindness doesn't cost you very much at all, if anything. Unless the other person is trying to manipulate you or control you. And that's what I want us to think about today. I want to think about where is that boundary of kindness where it stops being you loving someone else for the sake of love and, and becomes something else, enmeshment or, or some other um, behavior that's unhealthy. And, and the answer to this is going to be a shock to you, but the answer to figure out where the right boundary and kindness is, is Jesus. There's kind of a seminal work called Boundaries. It's by uh, Cloud and Townsend. It's a really great book that you should pick up if you're curious more about this. But this, the one sentence summary of that book is, know what is yours to carry. Know what is yours to carry. Because you don't have to carry someone else's luggage, but you also need to be responsible for your own stuff. Know what is yours to carry. Know what is the property of your own soul. If you find yourself saying statements or if you're hearing statements like, she drove me to it or he made me feel this way, those are the kind of statements that reveal an enmeshed relationship. Now, it's possible that your spouse leaves the towel on the floor for the seventh day in a row. And it's possible that your roommate clips their toenails and leaves them on the coffee table again. And that makes you feel angry or frustrated or irate. But the key here is that those emotions are your property and you decide what you do with them. Other people can affect your life, but they shouldn't control it. And I think most of us are working as we're growing in maturity in Christ and growing in our health towards God, and we find ourselves in a healthy place and, and dealing well with others. But you notice, like, have you ever noticed when your spouse or maybe when you have a mood swing after you go home for a visit, maybe they're a little less patient or more irritable or a little more depressed after they come from their hometown? Well, they may have grown up in a family with a little dysfunction. And it infects you when you grow there, and then you carry it with you for a while. And part of the process of maturity is, is learning how to be emotionally healthy in all of these different environments, even some of them that weren't very good for you. 
The other side of boundaries is your feelings are your own, but on the other hand, your feelings are yours. This is your skin. This is your time. This is your attention. This is your physical space. This is your emotional intimacy. These things exist that are your property. And when someone comes over to your yard to try to stomp all over your flowers, you may not be able to stop it, but you can communicate that there are consequences for those actions. There's this group called the Gottman Group. It was started by a couple uh, in marriage and family therapy. They, they made a TV show based on their work. It was called Lie to Me. It was from a while back. And basically, like, they, they invented these human lie detectors where they would just look at somebody's face and kind of the micro expressions on someone's face to figure out if they're lying or not. And if you watch the show, the way you could tell that they were doing that is they would kind of tilt their head sideways. Like, that's how they could tell you're lying or not. But um, it's based on reality. And the, the Godman group, what they did is they watched high-speed film of people having conversations, and they slowed it down to see those unconscious and uncontrollable facial reactions that you have when someone else says something to you. And they could kind of track uh, how... Um, they could track how healthy a relationship was by the way that the people talked to one another and their facial expressions. It got to the point where the Gottmans were so good at this process, they could listen to a 30-minute conversation that a couple was having about anything. It doesn't even have to be their conflict. It could be about anything. And they could predict with about a 90% accuracy within three to five years if that couple was still together. But the things that they noted was that couples who turned toward their partner when their partner had a bid for attention, as opposed to being critical or sarcastic or stonewalling or treating them with contempt, those couples experienced a better quality of relationship and lasted longer. The way that you treat the person closest to you determines how long that relationship is going to last. Now, every relationship is going to experience some level of anxiety from time to time. You can experience anxiety. The other can experience anxiety. But the we, the two of you together, can also experience anxiety. But check this out. Anxiety regulation through accommodation leads to relational gridlock and erosion. If you respond to the, the anxiety of the other or your own anxiety by just trying to keep the peace, by not dealing with the problem, but you accommodate the other, it's gonna kill your relationship. When you walk around on eggshells, when you make allowances for behavior, it's not unlike a tyrant that lives in your house. And so how do we act with kindness? Well, we look at Jesus. The best way to act with kindness is to ask the questions that Jesus asked. In Mark 10, there's this fascinating, uh, sto these two stories, they're right side by side, and Jesus asked the same question in both stories, but each story has a very different context. The question is, what do you want me to do for you? In the first story, it's James and John. And they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. They're arguing about who's going to be the most important. And they want to ask the question, Jesus, can we sit on your right and your left when you come into your kingdom? And so it's in their head, and Jesus approaches them and says, what do you want me to do for them, do for you? 
And they say, well, we want to be important. The other story is the story of blind Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus hears that Jesus and his disciples are coming by, and he's brought to Jesus. And Jesus asks him the same question. What do you want me to do for you? I find these two stories fascinating. Because for James and John, the answer is no, because what they want isn't Jesus's to give. That's only for God to give. Bartimaeus is asked, what do you want? I mean, he could have answered like a sandwich. Don't skim over that question when you read that text. Did, did Bartimaeus realize who he was talking to? He's talking to the one whom all of creation was created through. Jesus could have given him anything that was his to give. What do you want me to do? For instance, in your, your own life, you could wake up early because you want to be kind to your spouse and you make the coffee. And so you, you grind the beans and you roast them and they're ready to go and you got to go early. So you make that coffee and you put a post-it note on the coffee maker and it says, I love you. And you leave out the door and you think I'm being kind to my spouse because I'm making them coffee. But maybe what you don't know is your spouse had a really long night the night before. They didn't sleep well. Or maybe the little ones kept them up all night, or maybe they weren't feeling well. And, and so you, you know, check in with them at about 10 o'clock. You say, hey, did you get the coffee? And they said, yeah, I smelled it, and it woke me up, but I really needed that extra hour of sleep. What do you want me to do for you? That question is the gateway to kindness. What do you want me to do for you is the question that is asked from a king. It's asked from a place of power because that's the place that a king can do things that nobody else can do. What do you want me to provide for you? But that level of question is also asked from the place of a servant because it's their role and duty and humility to provide for somebody else. What can I do? How can I serve you? And Jesus embodies both the king and the servant in his life. A king full of power and a servant full of humility asks the same question. And Christ may not do what we would do in the name of love. In fact, Christ's model, when we examine it, may be offensive to us. Kindness does not over or under function. If blind Bartimaeus had asked for a sandwich, I believe that Jesus would have given him one. If blind Bartimaeus had asked, Lord, let me into your kingdom too, Jesus would have given them that as well. Kindness asks the question. Self-absorption is the opposite of kindness. The best example of what we understand is kindness in Jesus is from the Sermon on the Mount. And in the same way we talked about last week that Lamentations 3 is the lens by which we understand lament and grief, the Sermon on the Mount is the lens by which we understand Jesus. And so I want you to read it this week if you have time. Uh, Matthew 5 through 7. In fact, if you want to really get into this, read this every day in one sitting each day this week. Just live in it and slip that lens form how you understand Jesus. 
But there's a question of what, what do we do with the Sermon on the Mount? After all, it contains lines like, if my eye or my hand causes me to sin, I should cut them off. Because it's better to enter into the kingdom one-eyed or one-handed than it is to go otherwise. Is that literal? If it was, I would probably only have one of everything at this point. <laughs> Luther thought the Sermon on the Mount was the impossible standard which forces us to accept grace. I think the Sermon on the Mount is the best example of the most beautiful reality when we live into God's kingdom as a church. When people want to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And we see glimpses of this all over this place around here. The new reality that God is unfolding around us. It's the way that your children have 30 or 40 aunts and uncles and adopted grandparents in this place. When your adult children come home and they come to church and there's people that ask them that remember where they're living now and what their job is because they care about your adult children. It's the way that the littles around here are all kind of known and cared for. The way that Jack likes soccer and Avery likes Kuksuwan and Mary has a tender heart. I have two little ones and when my boys get to be teenagers, they're gonna have questions that they may not feel comfortable coming to me or Natalie with. And I want them to have people who have been in their life for so long that they can go to them. And we can experience the unfolding kingdom all around them. Jesus calls for exceeding righteousness. And what we're talking about there is qualitative exceeding righteousness, not quantitative exceeding righteousness. He doesn't want his disciples to do more than the Pharisees around them. He wants them to do better. Kindness is the path to exceeding righteousness. What happens when what you do doesn't come out of fear or shame or guilt or this desperate concern that one day you'll be judged and you haven't done enough yet? And so I think we need to read the Sermon on the Mount locally, but not globally. You could ask the question, how would this shape world politics? But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. Let's work on loving our neighbors first before we worry about governing an empire. But he has these three little phrases that he offers in Matthew chapter 5. The first one you said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Now, he's directly uh, quoting from the Old Testament here, from the law. But what the original law's intent was to do two things. One is that it provides justice. Everyone gets to ask for an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Not just the rich, not just the powerful, but everyone has access to justice. But on the other hand, justice is limited. If somebody takes your eye, you can't kill them. If somebody takes your tooth, you can't murder their family. And so in this sense, it limits feuds and disagreements. Everyone gets opportunity to access, the king and the poor. But on the other hand, the justice is limited. But Jesus says, but I say to you, don't resist the evildoer. And what does he mean by the strike on the right cheek? If, if most of the world is right-handed, that's the backhanded, not the fist. And that's probably insult, not assault. It's when someone comes to shame you or embarrass you. 
When someone tries to steal your work at work or someone tries to belittle you at a party, if someone's trying to shame you, let them. This probably isn't about violence. I love how one commentator puts this. He says, allow your cheek to become an anvil, not a doormat. Allow your enemy to break their shameful attempt on your cheek. But it doesn't mean that you have to let someone walk all over you. It does mean that you need to know where the source of your identity is. If someone tries to hurt you, if someone is mean or evil or wrong or brutally insulting, so what? That's not what your father says about you. Your father says that you are loved. Your father says that you are worthy. Your father says you are chosen. Your father said he sent his son to find you. It doesn't matter what they say. So let them break their shame on your cheek. Jesus goes on to say, if someone wants to sue you uh, and take your coat, give them your cloak as well. Now, again, this has some Old Testament roots there because it says the law limits how much you can take. You can't take somebody's coat overnight, cloak overnight, because then they'll be cold. And so if somebody tries to take something from you, give them something more because it forces them to step outside of the law. The law says they can't go that far. If someone sues you, respond with kindness and force them to examine their own heart. The last that Jesus talks about is the extra mile. If someone forces you to go the extra mile, uh, give also uh, the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. Now, the extra mile is, is a reference to the Roman Empire. It's a policy that they took from the Persians that a soldier could force you to carry their kit one mile. And you can't stop them. There's nothing you can do. It's the Roman Empire. You can't take that power away from them by fighting. You can't take that power away from them by killing. But you can do it with kindness. They can't make you do two miles. I choose to be kind. So we keep our boundaries and we don't lose our identity. This is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. And he has this powerful phrase. He learned it from Gandhi, who learned it from Tolstoy, although he understood it them both better than both of them. All three of them learned it from Jesus. In a sermon written in a Georgia jail, he wrote, hate multiplies hate in a descending spiral of violence. It is just as injurious for the person who hates as it is their victim. But above all, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Do you want to defeat your enemy? Try kindness. It'll do more than make them lose. It will make them think. It will force self-reflection. What is different about you? What is different about that interaction from anyone else that they meet? Whether it's a store clerk, someone that rings you in the back, or someone that's mean to you at work. The way that they're going to hear about Jesus in your life is the way that you are kind. We're almost done with our series on kindness. 
Um, and next week, we kind of have a special service plan, so I want you to hear about it. We're going to be thinking about how kindness is the canary in the coal mine of your soul. You lose your sense of kindness and your sensitivity to that, it might be really bad for your soul care. You might be in a really unhealthy spot. It's kind of that warning bell that goes off before things get too bad. But silence and solitude is the source of our kindness. And so the, sec- the service next week is going to be a little bit different style than normal. It's going to be contemplative. It'll be quiet. I think it's going to be pretty provoking. And I think you're really going to like it. Please stand for our benediction. May the God of all comfort, who comforts you in your distress, fill you with the spirit this week, empower you to be brave, empower you to be kind. May you see Jesus as you go and go in peace.